Hi. As a quick disclaimer, on the podcast from UBS, we have financial advisor Liz DeMontron and financial advisor Barry Young. We are on the Young Lockwood Sour team located in Houston, Texas, and our phone number is 713-940-2850. Our guests today are Hugo Ortega and Tracy Vaught, who are the co-owners of the H-Town Restaurant Group. They are not affiliated with UBS. Hello, welcome to another episode of Deep Roots, Forward Thinking, the podcast series hosted by the young Lockwood Sour team at UBS in Houston. My name is Liz DeMontron. I'm um, the host of the show. I'm one of the financial advisors on the team and thrilled to be back. And today I'm joined by my partner, Barry Young, who's my teammate, fellow podcast enthusiast. Welcome back, Barry. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for having me back. And uh, I got to tell you, I'm a little bit starstruck today. So if, I'm I, get totally tongue, starstruck. if, I, get, if I get tongue-tied, <laughs> um, please bail me out. Yeah, no, I'm definitely starstruck. Well, we are over the moon to welcome our guests today on the show. And they really don't need much introduction, but today we're joined by Hugo Ortega and Tracy Vaught. Welcome, Hugo and Tracy. Yes, it's thank a you. pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure. Great. Well, again, not that these two need any introduction, but they are two of the most renowned chefs here in Houston, and they are also the co-owners of the H-Town Restaurant Group here in Houston. Well, before I turn the floor over to these local legends, Barry, do you have anything you want to say? I I do, and this is where I get a little starstruck, but um, I... You know, this is... uh, It's special to have you here. I mean, I... My family and I have been coming to, well, Backstreet first, I think, but but Hugo's with some regularity for 21 years. Is that about right? It's, uh, yes. Yeah. The, thanks to you, we're still there. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think perhaps it's, it's its location in the Montrose, which I consider to be, you know, the center of the Houston universe and in some ways. And. And whenever I'm there, including last Sunday night, you know, it feels like it feels like home there. And, you know, I wanted to just express my appreciation and Elizabeth's, too, for, I mean, decades of, you know, good times and good margaritas. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't it seems like it wasn't long ago where we had, you know, you know, one in the in the baby high chair and then one in the in the bucket you know under the table and now um and now they can order margaritas (laughs) so yeah that's a that's an amazing legacy and one of the reasons why we're so happy to have you here and come talk a little bit about houston and you know what all that means to you so thanks well i'll go first yeah great i'm a native houstonian i grew up in river oaks and montrose area Rear Rugs with my parents, Montrose later on my own, and then the Heights, and then West U area, and now back to River Oaks. So the inner city, I've lived all around the inner city. I I live in a house that uh, my grandmother bought new. Her mother lived with them. So my daughter is really the fifth generation to live in this house, and you know, I'm, I'm going to renovate it until it uh, just sticks. Anyway, it has a lot of memories for me. And, you know, I went to St. John's and Lamar and then on to UT. And so that's sort of a well-traveled path and, you know, enjoyed every minute of all that. When I, I got a degree in geology, I went to work for five years doing geology. I was in Washington, D.C. doing um, government contract work in geothermal energy, and then I came back to work for an oil company. And after a while, I'm like looking out the window. I didn't want to be in the office making maps anymore or out on wells. I just wanted to be around more people. So I started looking for a way for, for me to start my own business. And so, you know, I ended up starting Backstreet in 1983, 
And then fast forward to 1987 or so, and Hugo started working at Backstreet for me as a dishwasher. And yeah, I don't know, a year or so after that, maybe it was two years, you know, my life just took a total left turn. And I thought it took a big left turn when I left geology and went into restaurants. But then I really, I really did it and uh, ended up together with Hugo. And so, you know, that created like a real punctuation in my life to start doing things a totally different way. And so now I'll just turn it over to Hugo to tell you a little bit about his experience in Houston and how he feels about it. Well, you say that Tracy's been very successful, right? (laughs) (laughs) Have a tremendous education and come from a very well-known family, and that's wonderful. And for me, it's it's been much more simple. I born in Mexico City in 65, and then at the age of uh, nine years old, I went to live with my grandmother in the center of uh, the country in Mexico, the state is Oaxaca, right Mm -hmm. at the borderline with Oaxaca and Puebla. And years later, I figured out that that is where I received my culinary education. At the time, um, I had this wonderful experience living with uh, Delia, that was her name. We have not have running water or gas or electricity. So life was very simple and we just dedicate ourselves to work and uh, we work to eat. And literally because every morning we start a live fire and we cook corn, turning into masa. And so life was very simple and slow. I will remark that one of the um, things that always kept kept me uh, intrigued, it was uh, my grandmother, it was very tall, like um, yourself, <laughs> and uh, she didn't smile much. And uh, so I never asked, you know, why she didn't, why she was so serious, but I think she had a, big responsibility in her hands to the point that she wanted this young person, you know, to learn and to do something with his life. I think that is what, you know, can can cross my mind that she was thinking. I I read in your cookbook that y'all prepared flan to sell in the market. And every morning, is that tr- is that right? That that happened in Mexico City. Yeah. So I I lived with when my grandmother from age nine to twelve or thirteen, and then we came back the whole family, meaning my mom and my my dad and, and brothers and sisters came back back to Mexico City, and we lived. I lived there from uh, thirteen to uh, eighteen or so, and then in. 84 is when I decide to come to, uh, you know, to America, what we call it, um, uh, you know, to this wonderful country. But meanwhile, he's mentioning the the things that you sold on the... Yes, I did, mm-hmm. a, 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 I did a, a little bit of everything in, in that, you know, yeah, it's a big city. <laughs> it, it, it strikes me that, well, two things about that. It is one, you you were a bit of a hustler from an early age and that you cooked with your mom and your grandmother and your brother, right? That's correct. And so fast forward to today, y'all have a family business as well. I think that's right. I think interesting. Uh, Hugo with, has some interesting stories yeah. about shining shoes and selling chiclets gum and selling flan and gelatins and I mean, he was a <laughs> you know out hustling like you say mm-hmm. as a young boy so what are my question i guess in that light is as you think back like what are some of the joys and pitfalls of a family run business family operated business which you still very much have 
Mm. So either one of you. The joys would be that they understand you and how you think Mm -hmm. and have similar values. The pitfalls are a lot is expected of them. So Hugo's brothers, a pastry chef, for example, had a sister who was a waitress for a while. You know, we have hired several of his brothers and sisters. And no matter what, the staff always expects a lot of those people. And the pressure's higher for them. So we have two brothers of Hugo's working with us. And you know, they've settled in now and and it's better. <laughs> They're older and more responsible, but they did both go through their irresponsible stage. So don't we all, I guess. Anyway. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, the pressure's high, but the they've always got your back. So to me, that's the good and the bad. Yeah. And you have Sophia involved now. Yeah, that's, that's over the top. I I look at the business, um, I can call it a profession, as the most rewarded. I tried always to be optimism, it's a big part of uh, who I am. I always look the good side of our business, and truly I like to stay on that lane. The business is very uh, challenging in many ways. I mean, anything can go wrong in in a minute or so, or in a blink of an eye. But I try to keep putting, you know, fire on what I love to do. And I think that's much better and much positive for me than look at it the other way. And also, I always remember, Barry, that when I left Mexico, I didn't have anything, mm-hmm. you know. So really coming over here and, and I have the opportunity to cook for, for you all, <laughs> it's, it's been a pleasure just to be able to do that and to get to know Houstonians like yourself and to get to know this wonderful community and to be part of um, this great city and, and uh, the neighborhoods and understand it. I think that that is always uh, will be the first thing that I would I would take with me over anything that can go bad. That's a great comment. The uh, you both intimated a point I wanted to ask you about. You know, in our business, you know, when you you know want to go and make a bet, you know, you go to Wall Street. But in your case, Tracy, you chunk the oil business and you bet it all on Backstreet. And I, how did you recall how you process that type of all or none risk? And in, mm-hmm. and in the context of what Hugo is, is saying about the inherent risk of the restaurant business, particularly after the, you know, what we went through in, in 2020, yeah. and you think back, is it, does it come and go that that risk feeling or is it is it a constant and and how also has it changed as the organization's gotten bigger well two things to say about that hugo's a positive thinker he's a glass half full guy that sees all the bright lights and everything and i'm a realist i mean i am seeing that glass exactly how many ounces it has in it So we make an interesting pair in that sense. I mean, he is driving out front and I am behind. So that being said, when I started Backstreet, I didn't know Hugo. And there was a feeling I had, I don't know if other people have this feeling, like I'm drawn to something. It's like somebody stuck their hand inside my chest and pulled it. Like I had no choice. It was so strong. That, and I was so scared, but it didn't matter. I was just so drawn to that, doing that thing, whatever it is. And I have 
a similar feeling. It's not as strong as it was back then, but I have a similar feeling whenever we want to start something new or a new project or something, I will have a similar feeling of needing to do it, of really wanting to do it and, you know, wanting to gather up all the details and everything, but the emotion of it, it draws me. I I can't describe that. So you've kind of formed the, that feeling of uncertainty into a process. It sounds like. I would say that's true. I mean, now that we've done several projects, you know, we have five restaurants, uh, you know, but everyone is so different. Uh, every business is so unique, depending on where it's located and how large it is and who the employees are, who the customers are. That's all very unique. Uh, so I think you could almost have restaurants side by side and have totally different issues can you tell us more about the five restaurants? And also, do you have a favorite restaurant? Is that like an unfair question? <laughs> well, Backstreet Cafe, uh, Hugo's Restaurant, Caracol in Post Oak area, and Herbe in the Post Oak area, and Sochi downtown in the Marriott Marquis. Those are the five. Four are different Mexican concepts, and one is American. Backstreet's the oldest. It's 40 years old. Uh, what else can I tell you about them? I will say I remember when Zochi launched onto the scene like 2017, mm -hmm. 2018. It was 2017. Yes. You're correct. And I remember that there, I mean, it's a fabulous restaurant, fabulous menu, but I remember there was Aunt Mole on the menu and that was a very big deal. And I remember wondering, you know, bringing an adventurous dish like this to Houston, you know, were you all worried about trepidation, you know, because it was so new? Or what was the response when you started to make mole out of insects? Tell them about standing out front. Oh, okay. So um, we opened in January, I think. And two weeks later, we're going to host the Super Bowl here in Houston. Yeah, that's right. So all kinds of folks came from everywhere, you know. So Tracy and I got brave and he say, you know, let's go over there and do a little PR and telling people that passing by on the sidewalk, you know, that we just opened this restaurant. So we went over there and I thought, we're making mole and uh, we, uh, this restaurant serving Oaxaca and cuisine. And one lady is passing through and she looked at me and she, I can see that she didn't have a clue what I was saying, <laughs> but she was pretty brave, I think. And then she came back and asked me this question. What is Oaxaca? And she looked, said, is it sushi? Yeah, or something like that. And I told, look at Tracy, I say, we in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly so. after that, we had, we etched on all the doors, uh, Mexican food agave bar, because a lot oh, of people yeah. had no idea what and, and, and even then, cuisine was. Yeah. And even then, uh, you know, listen, the agave word, even is, you know, was a little, a little bit uncertainly for many people what it really means. You know, agave is. A, but then, you know, we became more popular. Agave became more popular, and we figured out that, you know, it's the agave that you bake underground to make mezcal. So. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Things came a little more clear eventually. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a funny story recently. Hugo and I ran into each other, and I told him that I had some close friends that lived in Mexico City, and they were coming to Houston, mm -hmm. and we were going to take them to Hugo's, which you know was a bit of a daunting challenge, you know, to entertain some local citizens of Mexico City here in Houston, and. He said, oh, you know, I'm going to make them escamole, mm -hmm. escamoles, and which is uh, a eggs. delicacy, yeah. right, in Mexico City that you don't see on the menus here anywhere. I mean, and so my friends, they, they came to dinner. I didn't tell them. And they brought the escamoles out, and they were, I mean, they were floored. They couldn't believe it. And... um I, I mean, I couldn't believe it that 
because we ran into each other the day of or the day before, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, my question really is about about hospitality and you know how you pull off a a feat like that where you make people feel you know so welcome on you know on their terms. And by the way, the Eskimos were great, mm-hmm. and um, maybe the first time I, I think the first time I'd had them, I think that's right. But um, my friends, they they loved them and they were very very impressed. And so you know when I think about the years of consistently, you know, providing that level of hospitality. I mean, is there a secret to that? You know, what have you learned? And particularly like keeping a team together and motivated, what are your thoughts on that, on that aspect? I have so many thoughts. Yeah. Because it's not like, you know, a restaurant worker has to come to, to work every day. There's no remote. Right. And, and so that's a special motivation, especially now. I think Hugo and I, over the years, have come to, I'm not going to say that I understood this fully a long time ago, but we've come to the realization that we are very fortunate to have the customers that we have coming in the door. And so we try to give that message to everyone, our managers and our staff members that without our customers, we're nowhere. So our whole reason for being is to make our customers have a good time, enjoy their meal, and come back. That's our that's that's what we do. So if we make a mistake, which we make lots of them, if we screw up, then we kind of make a big deal out of it. Customers will send us a note. You know, the service was slow. The waiter wasn't polite. The valet didn't smile. The, I mean, everything you can imagine. And so we we talked to the waiter who waited on that table. We talked to the valet. We talked to the manager. Why did you not have enough people? So just not because we're trying to blame anybody, but because we want to bring attention when when we do make mistakes. But the whole mentality is we will we'll go the mile for you because that's that's sort of why we're there. So do you have anything you want to add to that about our emphasis on education? Yeah. That's been a big and, uh, push and how recently. Do you, how do you motivate your employees in the, in the kitchen especially? Well, um, there is two ways. The way the uh, Vince Lombardi did, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and the other way is just to that was uh, the old days. Though. <laughs> <laughs> and the other way is just to look at the people that come through that door, like Tracy say, and treat them like a friend, like a true friend. I mean, when I Look, it's one of my friends that been with me, you know, uh, for 20, 30 years. I feel something, you know, for them. I, 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 that's love, right? So if you uh, appreciate as much as that, a person that come through your doors and they're willing to give you their friendship and, and spend time with you, I think you got you gotta take that very seriously, and you gotta earn their trust. And you have to create experiences, and you have to convince them that what you do is something remarkably great for them. And uh, that is, to me, what hospitality is all about. It. And yes, we were willing to do that every single time for any person that come to those doors. And it does the challenge. Don't you think that hospitality and just for guests, it's also for employees, it's also for vendors, and it's also for the community. That's like the, those are the po- touch points, I guess you could say. It, it really is a community. I mean, you depend as much as on the driver. You know, you just smile to the driver. They want to bring you goods and treat him well. 
invite him a cup of coffee or mm-hmm. make him feel like, you know. It's we, a new way of thinking, I want to say. When I was happy. in the oil business, I mean. More siloed. Oh, no. I mean, if you go out on a well, the company man, they call it, that'd be the, the man who worked for the oil company who was running the show. And he was so mean and throw people off the job and scream at everybody. And that was kind of how it went. But now it's it's different. And I think Hugo has a great, I don't know if I want to say reputation, but a great way of treating people because he started as a dishwasher. I mean, he didn't go to culinary school and then come in at the top he like started at the bottom. So, you know, he he knows what the dishwasher needs and is going through and he he knows what the line cooks need and so his experience is through the entire kitchen. So it's kind of interesting. He nobody can pull anything over on him. If he hires a chef and they don't know how to cook, which happens a lot, believe it or not, Hugo can recognize immediately that that person doesn't know how to cook. So it's, it's strange. But there are a lot of guys who get out of culinary school and they can't, can't, they can't work the line. So Case study answers, that was. Yeah. That's good. Interesting. Okay. Will you go back and tell us what Ascomoles are? Sure. Um, so it's a, um, a delicacy and considered in Mexico. And the season is with the first rain in the spring. April, May, part of June. And um, so the way I experienced this, we did a culinary trip to Puebla and we went, they serve escamoles. So I was asking, you know, to the person, I said, so how would you, how how you bring the... How do you harvest? Yeah, how you harvest the uh, tulis and uh, an egg. Uh, so... It's a pre-Hispanic delicacy, and uh, they go by generations. So through generations, they say, this is the location of, you know, or this is my terrain, or this is my property where we have escamoles, and they come. And the secret is passed like that through generations, and the technique of how to harvest them and collect them also, which is, you know, is something uh, remarkable. Have Have you collected than before? I, I have tr- I have had the opportunity to go see there and, and see it. And it's just amazing, you know. I In the first try that I intend to do that, I got bit by the ants and I say, okay, that's <laughs> not for me. It's better if I just cook then and let, let, you know, the experts deal with that. But it's an incredible experience along with the, uh, collecting also the uh, chicatanas, which is the... Mm-hmm. The mole that the, the you mentioned earlier, the same kind of principle during the spring, the chicatanas is a flying ant. They fly, they hatch, and then the locals, they figure out how to catch them. It's pre-Hispanic food, pre-Hispanic way of, you know, utilize what you have as a part of where you live and, and the 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 cuisine yeah the the being in that moment in that place uh, something that I gotta say about that is uh, uh, considered the you know I'm Mexican and and I know the richness and I even have the great opportunity to be some places through Mexico and and I see is is one of the most uh, wonderful cuisines cuisines in the world there is no doubt about that and. Uh, Mexico is a very rich country when it comes to offer what is there, right? Yeah, it seems, I mean, that in particular seems like such a unique indigenous type of a food, but it it sort of, it animates some ideas around global food sourcing and sustainability that seems like to be a, a burgeoning trend, and I wonder if you could talk about you know sourcing of ingredients and you know what you've seen as far as cost pressure, you know uh, inflation, if you will, with respect to your ingredients, and you know how does that 
manifest itself on the plate? The, uh, answer the second part of your question, uh, very, uh, Tracy told me a couple of days ago, it was Denmark that went pl planted. Oh, yeah, Denmark? a plant-based cuisine mm -hmm. in Denmark. Right. Like across the country. Mm. I don't know. Interesting. So, the, you know, I always think the, the, our ancestors, you know, they, they always knew a little bit more in how to utilize, um, like, for example, I would say mole, right? So mole is made out of three or four different types of peppers, uh, spices, herbs, and a turkey at some point, right? That was, that was right. what is native to America or to the country of Mexico. So they always, they always <laughs> knew, seems to me, like the total utilization of your goods. There is some sauces in Mexico that you call it mole, but it have only five ingredients, and it's all vegetable. Uh, corn, of mm -hmm. course, is the, the foundation of that cuisine, and peppers, and spices, and herbs. But it seems to me like they, they, they knew better that you have to have a balance, right? Then when the pig got in, you know, introduced to the, to the diet of Mexico and America, then it changed for sure, right? But uh, I would say you cannot have carnitas every day, right? I mean, you have to have mm -hmm. your peppers or, mm -hmm. or herbs or so on. So I think we've been uh, spoiled a little bit our, ourselves by not following seasonality, for example, you know, and, and things like that. They've been indulging ourselves. Uh, yeah, I can say that. So th that ancestral heritage, does that mean we're going to see more insects on the plate? That can be. <laughs> <laughs> Hugo's it's, it's had a moments. number of uh, universities send people over to talk to him about insects in the diet. Wow. The University of Rice, he have a professor that study uh, insects. Mm -hmm. And uh, one time he told me, we were talking about this at UH, and he said, if you take 30 grams of grasshoppers, have you had the grasshoppers? Yeah, you chapulinas. Made? Chapulinas. Mm -hmm. If you take a 30 grams of grasshoppers, equivalent in volume, what is a, a whopper? That's, I always say it wrong. The Big you know, Mac the, or... The, yeah, the one they have two parties. Yeah, the, the Big Mac. The Big Mac, yeah. okay. Wow. Mm. And then, so you, you just tell you right there, you know, <laughs> when it's protein, excuse me, you don't need much of anything else. You, know, you just need protein to you, to the core of your system. So I was exposed to that cuisine. I know it's wonderful and it's very simple. It's satisfying, but... You know, what What can I say? I'm Mexican, so i born Mexican. <laughs> so one of my favorite networks to watch is Bravo, which has a lot of trash, as my mother would say. But it also mm -hmm. has this show called Top Chef. Uh -huh. And a few years ago, season 19 was actually here in Houston. I think I saw, I think I saw you on an episode or two with Tom, Padma, and Gail. But how, how credentializing is it to have Houston, you know, kind of, noticed and on the map in terms of just international food cities and how many chefs are you seeing come to Houston to launch their careers? Boy, that's kind of loaded. I, I think it takes a, a lot more than just them visiting the city. And I think that Houston has a lot of great food. It went unnoticed for a long time. Now it's, beginning to be noticed. And, you know, even Michelin came over here talking. Now, Michelin, is, you have to make a deal with them. The city has to pay them, basically. And so I guess they didn't quite make the deal, but, you know, they were reaching out. So, you know, it's over time, I think. And I have noticed other chefs coming to Houston, mainly for economic reasons, not, in my view, like they're leaving places like New York or San Francisco or L.A. 
because of regulations, because of the expense of renting a space or those kinds of things, and uh, might come to Houston uh, just because it's perceived as being a little bit more friendly to business and, you know, less expensive rent and that kind of thing. So I, I think we're just business friendly here. Fair comment. What what are, outside of your own restaurants, what are some of your other favorite Houston restaurants? Hmm. Well, we go to a lot of the same restaurants over and over. Because <laughs> that's Hugo. Always. <laughs> um, Hugo loves seafood. Mm-hmm. So we eat at Good Company Seafood, and we always have the same thing. <laughs> and then we like Clark's in Austin, and Clark's just opened here. We went for their opening. We like to go, like, if we just want to kind of hide and have, like, a Sunday dinner or something, we go to Oporto, which down in Midtown, and we love the staff there. They're really nice, and we have some ex-employees there, too, so we always feel very well taken care of there. And um, if we're celebrating, we might go to Brennan's. Alex is a friend. and. Where else do we go? I think we we keep it very, very simple. Uh, just the places that make you feel special. By, there's nothing wrong to have a catfish for the past 30 years. <laughs> every Sunday. <laughs> with salsa and a little bit of rice. And uh, good company has a little bit of Tex-Mex flair uh-huh. to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we like to have the cappuccino and get some mm-hmm. oysters uh-huh. and that kind of is thing. There, is there any other... Mexican influenced or Tex-Mex restaurant in town that that's a I mean, that's once a draw. In a while we go to Nymphus. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Well, navigation. Hugo mm-hmm. likes to get the quail yeah. there. Mm-hmm. It was very specific about what he likes and Godornis. Um, Godornis. Yeah, he they he loves that quail. Godornis. So you know we like to. I mean, we go out to new places and stuff, but those are some places that we go. But we try trying to go more to our own restaurants to be a customer and see what you know customers are are uh, their experience. I I I grew up eating a very simple food. You know, we I mean, it was right there on the on you know we eat on the floor with my grandmother was you know grounding the next tamal, the, the cooked corn to make masa and. She got in, you know, in her knees and used her metate, and so it's it's very simple, really, when you come and understand the food that made you happy. But of course, you have to connect, you know, with what it is. So for me, is is it's a very simple gathering, you know, and, and flavors gotta be clean and and something that I familiar with it. So. Mm-hmm. It's always it's amazing, and I can't wait to ask this question because it's loaded. But um, how things that are so simple, the execution, you know, can be wildly off. So my question is: is why is it so difficult outside of y'all's places to make a margarita in a restaurant? I think. Um, Do you understand what I'm getting at? I well, so it's the quantities of each thing, but it's also the quality of each individual mm-hmm. ingredient. Mm-hmm. So it's saying. those those two things. And, uh, you know, there are a number of orange liqueurs that are, mm-hmm. you know, you can use and a number of tequilas, different types of tequila, fresh lime juice, simple syrup or agave syrup. So there's a lot of ways to, to, you know, mix that up, right? And and we mix it up all kinds of ways, but, you know, the quantities need to be balanced. So can't be too sweet, can't be too mm-hmm. limey, too much tequila, makes it too sharp, I don't know. But on on our most popular drinks we have them batch those and measure exactly so that when a different bartender's on they taste the same so if it's a more expensive then they make those individually but hugo rita for example always gets batched so it's always tastes the same 
in theory. You know, <laughs> I, we make a lot of mistakes, though. Well, coming so. in for a first try margarita is like a huge relief and like not having to send it back. And that rarely happens at y'all's place, but it, it always happens at some others. And I think that that measure of precision, even though the ingredients are pretty simple, is seems like the key. That's, that's true. And Hugo and I like to drink margaritas, so we experience the same thing you do. And, you know, we're, we're picky. And so... We uh, all come it, over and let me let let you let me make you one. Oh sure, sure. I want to. I want to be judged. Yeah, oh, I, I mean, I would never judge desk. you. Uh, I mean, that's that's a whole nother thing. I'm yeah, I, I think the the tequila, like I always say, has been the number one ingredient to have mm -hmm. in your margarita. But I think, like our industry, it have refined, you know, and and now is better tequila. I can say that. Mm -hmm. uh, right, they just uh, age it a little bit more. If it's reposado or is um, they purify the tequila a little bit more, and it you know it tastes more elegant. You know, with not that uh, alcohol, they mm -hmm. can be very sharp in you and you palate. Um, things like that is, is been helped, but I think the the number one ingredient they should go there. And now we have the liquor that we can say, I want reposado, I want blanco. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, Distilled this twice or three times is much better. Añejos. Añejos, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With the holidays coming up, do you all have any holiday recipes that are favorites, any holiday traditions? Oh, gosh. We've got our daughter's boyfriend's parents are coming to Thanksgiving. Ooh. So I'm nervous about, you know, because they, they, you got to cook uh, something exotic. They live, <laughs> in, yeah, exactly. they live in Seattle. Uh -huh. Wow. And I believe the, they, uh, when her boyfriend was a child, they lived in Connecticut. So, you know, we cook, no, I cook Thanksgiving and it's Southern all the way. So, you know, that's going to be kind of a culture shock for them. But I think it's good to to just let it be what it is because that's what we know and that's who we are. So I just try to keep the dish area clean. <laughs> yeah. Tracy, the type of cook, that, uh, she's a wonderful cook, by the way, and I love that tradition. And uh, But uh, she likes to make Dory every single piece of... Uh, <laughs> You're right, I do. Uh, <laughs> Dishes that every we have pot and pan. every pot and pan. There you go. Thank you. And so I just try to keep it under control. Yeah. So and usually we'll have you know, Hugo will contribute at least one dish. It might be tamales or it might be some other thing, but usually he puts something in there that's his tradition. Like not for Thanksgiving because they didn't have a Thanksgiving, but you know holiday tradition. Mm-hmm. Do you all cook together? Not often, okay. but usually I cook at home and he'll come in and sort of finish it off because he's not satisfied with the way I'm doing it. <laughs> sort of like my driving at the, you know, the same thing. So not, not a lot, but at home we just, we cook kind of healthy try for to, the most yeah, part. Try to uh, cook it uh, clean and. Yeah, and like. Just a yes. piece of fish and a vegetable or something like that. It's spinach with garlic. My <laughs> he favorite. likes that. Oh. And do you all get to take any time off for the holidays? Not really. Um, we, um, we We've we never traveled during the holidays. During the holidays, and we always attend our friends, yeah. right? They come and see right. us, and our industry is one of a kind, and it gives you a lot of satisfaction, and, but you always ask for more. You know, it's, it's just what it is. Uh, but again, we, Tracy and I figured out how to make it better, I think, uh, in many ways. And and we're just happy, at least myself, for the opportunity to to cook for, for you all and to serve you and make you feel welcome. Well, for sure, you both made an incredible contribution to Houston and you've made it, you've made it better, at least from my vantage. You know, one thing I really want to say before we wrap up, 
my sense of Houston before I met Hugo was very superficial, I think. I mean, I didn't I didn't think it was possible uh, a lot of things that that we have done together or that people that we've met or for example, the mayor knows who Hugo is. And, you know, greets Hugo by name, and Hugo has traveled with the mayor to Mexico. And we we have served presidents, and Hugo has a way of meeting people and being a part of the city in a significant way that I could only dream of. I could never have done that. But when it came time to do Caracol, Hugo said, well, let's go to Post Oak. That's where all my people are. That's, and I was like, Post Oak, that's like, I mean, that's the Galleria. I mean, I was totally uh, (laughs) overwhelmed with that idea. Yeah, I got Montrose. I understood that and where Backstreet is. But Post Oak, you know, that was a stretch for me. Uh, So he made my life much bigger. So, uh, and deeper, I would say. So anyway, uh, even though he's new to town, you know, wasn't a native Houstonian. You're going to be walking tall all day today. He got very, it really helps when you don't know how money works. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I mean, I, I think, you know, some people who just have a knack for communicating with others and, you know, have a strong personality and other people want to get to know them and uh, want to include them. And that's that's what Hugo has uh, that I think is probably his biggest asset is the way he communicates with people. So Amazing testimonial. Well, y'all are an incredible team. And I love uh, what you said you. about Hugo thank being you. the visionary mm-hmm. out front. And then you're, and and you need both. You need both, Mm -hmm. you know, the visionary and the meticulous, detail oriented. I don't know. I I have that much vision. I just think I have the great opportunity, and this is how I define myself. So I born on the, what I call it, the umbrella of the Mexican cuisine. So in Mexico, if you're born in Mexico, you know, you're supposed to know how to cook meaning a good salsa, a good guacamole, a margarita, because the country is so rich. So that, I think, born under the umbrella, what I call it, that wonderful cuisine is what it makes facilitate, you know, who I am. And wherever I go, I have to talk to uh, the highest order about uh, my country and the cuisine that we love so much. And... So I don't think I that visionary that Tracy thinks. So, <laughs> well, I, I, he's the positive. He's the yes. Mm-hmm. He says yes to everything, and I'm the one who's putting the brakes on sometimes. And about uh, three years ago, during the pandemic, I read this book by Shonda Rhimes called "Just Say Yes" or something like that. I forgot the title exactly. And it was about how she was fearful to do public speaking. She was fearful of a lot of things. And her sister told her, you know, you're you're not going to go anywhere or you're always so scared or you should just do it or whatever. And, you know, it stuck in her brain. And so she did start public speaking and she did start saying yes to invitations that she would have said no to and just stayed on the couch at home. She just didn't want to go. And uh, so she started like saying yes to life, I guess you could say. And I'm on the treadmill listening to this thing and I'm like, you know, this is me. I'm saying no. So now I'm more also more open to doing more things and so it's a it's a good trait a good what he team. has naturally. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I think we mm-hmm. probably are wrapping up. Um, Hugo, do you have anything you want to end with? Or oh, I always have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot thank enough this uh, wonderful friendship 
meeting Barry and meeting you and also being part of this incredible city the it had give us to Tracy and I and Sophia the opportunity to identify ourselves but truly I see Houston uh, and always we see Houston the same day that I left Mexico is the promised land and it always be the promised land where 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 things we change for good so I appreciate every single Houstonian and every single opportunity and all the people that have passed through my life is it's been it's been wonderful and I thank you mm-hmm. thank you chef yeah thank you Barry anything you want to end on no that's it I think that's an abundance of positivity from both of you so mm-hmm. we uh can't thank you enough for coming. Oh yeah, yeah. Thank and, you all um, so much. This, I think we'll our longest episode. Look forward to seeing yeah. you over the holidays. Yeah, many yeah. times. I hope you'll edit that down. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's too much good stuff on here. So I hope we keep most of it. Well, thank you all again. Mm-hmm. Thanks to our listeners. This has been another episode of Deep Roots Forward Thinking. I'm your host Liz Demontron signing off. We'll be back soon. Thanks everyone. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. It does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any specific product or service. UBS does not provide legal or tax advice, and we would recommend listeners to obtain appropriate independent professional advice. Some of the views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Group AG or its affiliates. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. These services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS Group AG and is a member of FINRA and SIPC.